Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson Podcast. Today, an extra edition and a little bit of a switch up. I'm interviewed by Leah Wilson, Executive Director of Stand for Health Freedom. Today, I'm being interviewed by Leah Wilson, Executive Director of Stand for Health Freedom. She asks me a lot about my journalistic background, how I came to cover some of the stories that I covered today, and we talk about what went on behind the scenes as the media environment changed from one that was inviting stories once upon a time that looked into media scandals and health scandals to one that was then almost wholly controlled by the pharmaceutical industry and the health industry, meaning those kinds of stories cannot easily be fairly reported in many outlets anymore. After Leah Wilson interviewed me, I asked if it was okay if I posted this on my podcast, and she said, yep, go ahead. But as part of the podcast, you will get to learn something about Stand for Health Freedom and Leah Wilson, who started this nonprofit or co-founded it in 2019. She is an attorney and reading off the website, an attorney with a background in complex litigation and advocacy. She is passionate about children's health and worked on child welfare issues for more than a decade. She writes on the website, the over-medication of children in foster care as a form of behavior management is what compiled her to become an advocate and foster parent. During her time as a court-appointed special advocate for abused and neglected children, Leah witnessed the rampant use of psychiatric drugs among foster kids. She also discovered that, in addition to many extensive requirements, the state had a policy that all foster children and foster families be fully vaccinated without exception. Through her involvement in law, health, and the foster care system, it became abundantly clear to Leah that the single most important issue affecting child welfare in the United States is the practice of one-size-fits-all medicine via medical mandates. This motivated Leah to expand her advocacy beyond foster care to all children nationwide and start Stand for Health Freedom in 2019. Well, that idea, as we know, has only grown more popular on the heels of the national COVID experience. What has this nonprofit done? Looking at a couple of the actions they publicize, which you can find on their website, standforhealthfreedom.com. In December of 2019, they launched multiple campaigns for New Jersey citizens who are in jeopardy of losing their religious exemption to vaccination. It says on the website, in just one week's time, more than 80,000 emails were sent to New Jersey lawmakers through this group's advocacy portal, which showed the immense opposition to the measure and ultimately helped stop losing religious exemptions from becoming law. In spring of 2022, the group featured a campaign to support a federal bill to defund the World Health Organization. It says just shy of 140,000 advocates emailed and called their local congressmen followed by 46 lawmakers signing onto the bill inside of a month. I think needless to say that didn't pass. We're still supporting the World Health Organization, but interesting to understand what their priorities are. And one more, our Vote for Health Freedom Project, says the website, vetted hundreds of candidates around the country for their dedication to informed consent and medical freedom, armed voters with information, and resulted in 642 endorsed candidates moving on to the general election in 2022. What is theoretically so important about groups like this? Well, they are providing some balance, finally, 
to the massive, well-funded and organized groups that advocate for the pharmaceutical industry, and they do so in partnership with the media and political figures, both of which are funded by the pharmaceutical and healthcare industry. So it's very difficult to be heard among all of that, yet grassroots organizations are trying to do just that, and this Stand for Health Freedom is one such group. Here's the interview with Leah Wilson and me. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, I'll let you know a little bit about Stand for Health Freedom before we dive into hearing from Cheryl. We started Stand for Health Freedom in the beginning of 2019 in response to something that my husband and I had gone through as foster parents in the state of Indiana. We had decided to begin taking foster care placements after the birth of our second son again, and we're told right before accepting another placement that we were no longer eligible to be foster parents because the vaccine status of our biological sons, we didn't choose to do all 72 CDC recommended vaccines for our boys, made them a threat to the welfare of the children that we might be a home for. And at that point in time, I knew a lot about child welfare, about the foster care system, about the laws around these things. And so I challenged that all the way to the top here in the state of Indiana. And there was really nothing behind this new policy, except for the money that was coming from HHS that was spawning this trend to go across the U.S. at the same point in time. So I said, all right, God, this is too big to fight, but too big to walk away from. Where do we go from here? And it became clear that it was time to shed enough light that there would be enough people to use their voices effectively so that policies would make more sense for our kids, especially for those who are vulnerable, like the foster kids. Imagine our sadness when we knew there were foster kids in the state of Indiana sleeping on the floor at the Department of Child Services, yet our safe and loving home was considered a threat to them. So here we are, friends. Four and a half years later, over 5 million actions later taken by you and your friends, we are more of a stakeholder in this constitutional fight for our freedom than we have been in a very long time. So I, all that to say, I think that you and I and those at Stanford Health Freedom share a lot of values that Cheryl Atkinson also has with her work delivering the facts to her audience as she is the managing editor of Full Measure. She's an investigative journalist, three times New York Times bestselling author. And over and over again, I am just impressed, Cheryl, at how you bring hard-hitting stories to the public's eye at the right time. Thank so you I'm so gonna much. Go, yes. I'm going to go ahead and ask you. I went back through things that I had liked from your reports, you know, things such as you covering that the flu vaccine was not effective for the elderly, yet the elderly are the prime targets of the flu vaccine marketing, or talking to an immunologist from the CDC about the connection between vaccines, potential autism diagnoses, or obesity and diabetes in children. Can you share with us, what does health freedom mean to you as a journalist? Well, I approach it differently than the people who belong to your group and follow you. This is just a factual pursuit for me. I had no um, personal search that I was conducting. 
My daughter, for example, was fully vaccinated because I had not researched any of these issues. Like many other people, you tend to just accept what you're told and what your doctors suggest. And so when I was first assigned to start covering, I would call it medical scandals at CBS News as an investigative reporter, talking around 2000 time period, I was stunned as I began to look at evidence with an open mind, which too few journalists do, to find peer-reviewed published studies and experts supporting things that I had been told were untrue. And I started to kind of go down that rabbit hole um, and discover that this is, I think, one of the biggest scandals of our time, what's hap happened to public health, the misinformation that's been furthered by the medical establishment, as well as our government and even our private doctors, because as I'll be writing about in my book, and as your followers probably already know, um, medical schools are full of doctors being taught on a curriculum largely designed by the pharmaceutical industry. They are taught in continuing medical education classes by, that are devised by the pharmaceutical industry. And I think people have little ideas to how you know, endemic this is in our media and in our politics. And so I think it's one of the biggest stories of our time. And I approach it from a journalist viewpoint, although certainly I've applied some of what I've learned to my personal life, but this is a factual pursuit to me. And I think the most important stories and the ones I like to do most are the ones that other journalists are not covering or covering as fully as I think they deserve. A lot of journalists could step back and see some of these topics as potentially career ending. Do you remember a point in time when you said, this is risky, but I'm willing to cover it anyway? I'm stubborn like that, I guess. Yes, I do remember. I mean, in the 2000s, in the early time period, everybody was covering these stories. This is before the pharmaceutical industry had such a firm grip on the propaganda and such a successful campaign so that anybody who discussed these things as, as net, they now are, are attempted to be controversialized as anti-vaccine and so on. But back in the early 2000s, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, we were all covering these stories and competing to be on the leading edge of uncovering some of the scandals that exist in our public health system, particularly when it comes to vaccination, but many other medical topics as well. And then you can trace, you know, I didn't really understand at the time because my bosses kept encouraging these stories and assigning me to new ones. But there was somewhere, some, somewhere in the network at CBS, there was pushback came to be and I didn't quite understand fully why or who it came from. They were still airing the stories, but I could tell some people didn't like it. On the one hand, they loved them. On the other hand, someone didn't like them. And um, in retrospect, this had to do with the time during which broadcast groups I was working for CBS partnered at the corporate level with the pharmaceutical industry to lobby Congress for direct to consumer ads on TV so that they can flood us with advertising that we all in the media make millions and billions of dollars off of. And then the pharmaceutical industry in turn makes money. And that's when this reporting virtually stopped or became to be very slanted at many media outlets. So I was deeply entrenched in learning about and uncovering some of the biggest stories of my career, in my opinion, in terms of importance to the public. And then starting to see this pushback that I didn't quite understand, but only from certain corners in the network. And then it grew and grew where there was a lot of outside propaganda that would fight reporters like me and try to controversialize us. And I just kept my nose straight, trying to keep following the same stories. So it wasn't, a decision wasn't to be made to, to me because I'm a 
again, I'm stubborn like that. I think it's the right thing to do to continue reporting factually, regardless of the pressures that come and are exerted upon you from the outside. And that wasn't the first time that it happened to me. I do think it's hard for many reporters because maybe they don't have bosses that support them. Ultimately, some of my bosses probably didn't support me, but in the short term they did and they wanted these stories. It was their idea in the first place. So it made it easy for me to continue. And even as this topic got to be the third rail for most everybody, I just continued to follow the facts like I normally would do as a reporter. And, and I try to continue to do that today. And I think it's been quite successful to, when you call out the people who are criticizing you for what they are, in many instances, these are organized propagandists who are being paid by you know, nonprofits funded by the pharmaceutical industry or political figures who are getting their money. When you start to peel back the truth of that, I think a lot of people understand what's going on, maybe more so today than they ever have. Yes, and it's interesting to hear you experience that shift from inside the newsroom. I know that we have 38 state directors across the United States that help us with policy work and mobilizing people on the ground. And many of those state directors witnessed that same shift because, for example, Sheila Ely, who's on our team, she was interviewed day after day after day about her son Temple's story by the news media. And then there came this shift where they stopped calling for the stories. And at that point in time, even if you asked them if they wanted the story, it was then even no longer accepted as something that was relevant. So it's interesting to hear your experience with that. Before we get to your new book, I wanted to ask you, you wrote a book titled Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Do the people really want censorship? Is that what you're seeing is that this has become our comfortable spot in society or what, what were you saying with that book? And this was really, I like to say ahead of its time because it was on the leading edge of the censorship trends that have really gripped us today. But I could see that we went from a time where there was nobody, and I trace this in the book, pre about 2015, I would defy you to find calls in the media or anywhere else saying, please curate our information please censor our news, please don't let people say certain things. That didn't exist in any sense, in any major sense. And then the campaign was started and it's traced in the book and the books that I've written with, with clarity because I was able to see the beginning of the movement, who started it and how it, how it turned out or how it got to be so big. But the challenge was, and this was built partly around pharmaceutical industry, partly around those who didn't like Trump, which are the same people, by the way. This was built around trying to controversialize and make sure that those voices were not heard. And you had to, to do this, convince people that they shouldn't hear everything and that they shouldn't want to hear everything. And to me, it's just so opposite of what this country is about, what most people want. But today, if you ask, you will get opinions from a lot of people that say, yes, they think the news should be curated or Yes, they think people should be kept off of social media if they believe certain things or say certain things. And again, this is all new. I'll just give you a little brief. People could read the book if they'd like to know more. But this started, um, I remember hearing President Obama give a speech at Carnegie Mellon. And he said, this is toward the end of his presidency, there's going to have to be a system set up under which 
there's a curation of our information. Someone's going to have to come in and, you know, curate the internet and what we read and what we hear. And it was the first time I'd ever heard such a suggestion. And I know that when a president makes a speech or gives remarks, it's not an offhand comment. There's a plan. And I remember wondering at the time, what's the plan and why? Well, that was the beginning of trying to get the media on board with curating Donald Trump or any other things that they didn't want the public to hear. And it was quite successful because this campaign, the media got on board, even the press, which I think should be the last ones to say, yes, we should be censoring information and telling you what to think. They jumped right in the mainstream press for reasons that I've also written about how they've been co-opted. And so, yeah, I think if you ask today, you will get a substantial percentage of the public that you wouldn't have gotten 10, 15 years ago saying, please curate my information. I don't want to hear anything I don't believe. But um, I think there's a growing group of people like us who understand how dangerous that is and who don't think that way. So I'm hoping that grows and builds and people understand the dangers of deciding that you're gonna hand over your information access to third parties who always have some sort of conflict of interest in what they want you to know. What do you think this is gonna mean for the elections in 2024? I think we have seen this sort of censorship at an all time high. It's becoming a sort of crushing pressure. It's, I almost think that Gen Z may be on the cusp of saying, whoa, we actually want the information, whereas the millennials were lulled to sleep a little bit. I don't know if you've seen that as a generational divide, but what does this mean for the elections in 2024? It's hard for me to know that as time goes on, if this is all anybody knows, there's a whole group of people that for the last eight plus years, this is the environment they've come of age in and they think this is normal. Of course, you don't let people say untrue things. You know, Of course, you let the media determine what's what's the truth, even when they don't know or when they aren't telling the truth. So it worries me how this gradual paradigm shift can happen. And then will anybody question it? But I do think it got so bad in 2016 and 2020 that it ended up waking up people and activating people who normally don't see themselves as activists, but saw that something was happening that could be quite harmful. And they're watching more carefully. I don't really know where it goes. I do think and I hope that the peak of this censorship has come and gone. You know, you see the, the those who are trying to control our information. And I think someone once said, the people trying to censor are never the good guys. I think that they're losing their grip. And in that desperation, they're working even harder. In my view, the reason Tucker Carlson isn't on Fox today is because there were forces working to make sure he didn't have a platform in 2024 that could help Trump. He was not overtly a Trump supporter, and he criticized Trump plenty of times, but the type of ex expository reporting he did on topics would tend to hurt Biden, for example, and help Trump. So I think they did not want him to have a platform, much as they tried to take Donald Trump off ballots. Um, they're trying to go after the propagandists and the censors, uh, Elon Musk, because Twitter is a very powerful platform that's been opened up a little bit more in terms of what can be said and you know freedom and so on. So they're they're sort of gasping and grasping because they're very fearful that Donald Trump will be reelected, and that they're losing control of information. Why are they so fearful of Donald Trump? I mean, you didn't ask the question, but let me just give a short answer. It's not so much the political stances he takes, in my view, from the experience and what I've learned from watching. 
He was an outsider that was not brought into office on the same money interests as the typical Republicans and Democrats. And he posed a uniquely strong threat to the system of Republican and Democrat money that had been long established and has been going on forever. And that's why they do not want a Donald Trump. They cannot have a Robert F. Kennedy Jr. These people who see the system for what it is and don't hang their hat on the support from the same people who have curried favor with the Democrat and Republican parties threaten this system that's been codified in our country. In one respect, I think you're right that we have seen this um, grasp, you know, trying to tighten the grasp to make sure they don't lose all the ground that has been gained with the oppression. But in another respect, I almost think sometimes it's more startling seeing how brazen they are to kind of laugh and not care that we can see that they've overplayed their hand. And that's a whole different sense as we look in on what's playing out in our country today. Much more after a short break. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In this age of a highly controlled media landscape, it's never been more important to fight the heavy hand of censorship and support truly independent journalism. Go to CherylAxon.com and click on the store tab for a great way to do that. There are all kinds of fun and functional products designed specifically for independent and free thinkers like you, featuring slogans like, I tested positive for critical thinking, and I need to find some new conspiracy theories, all my old ones came true. Proceeds support independent journalism causes like the Ion Awards for off-narrative, accurate reporting. Go to CherylAckeson.com and click the store tab today. So shifting to your new book, Follow the Science, How Big Pharma Misleads, Obscures, and Prevails. I think you started writing this book well before Ozempic came out, right? So what inspired this book is, you know, Ozempic's kind of taken the stage for the next huge scandal to ravish our families. Well, um, HarperCollins, my publisher, approached me, I don't know when it was, maybe a year and a half ago. I've written the rest of my books under the HarperCollins name. And they usually come back after a period of time and say, what's next? Well, they actually, for the first time, came back with an idea for me. And they said, how about a book about what happened with COVID, sort of this definitive book? And my view was, by the time this book comes out, that's been well done by a lot of people. You know, it'll be too old. So, yes, what happened with COVID is going to be part of this book for sure. But I said, what about a broader look, a more forward-looking book that doesn't just review what I think a lot of people are doing quite well, that looks at the, the greater structure of this pharmaceutical industrial complex that we're dealing with and how it's impacting our health, our chronic diseases and disorders, the way our political figures work and operate. And they said, absolutely. So Ozempic is one of thousands and thousands of examples and stories that can, can be told. 
Um, I tried to in the book and I'm still, it's going to be out in September. So I'm still working on it. I tried to tell stories of my journey into understanding what's go what's going on so that people can realize I didn't jump into this with an agenda as an activist of trying to figure out how to expose health scandals. I describe in succinct and clear ways with some pretty startling stories, I think, and behind the scenes accounts of how I came to discover what was going on as a journalist, contrary to what I thought and contrary to what my opinions had been. But when looking at it with a fair and open mind and following the facts, what I discovered, and my uh, editor said, wow, most people will not have heard any of these stories or 80% of the stories that you're telling. Now, the people watching this may be more informed than average, so they'll know some of them, but I guarantee you there's stories in there that they too haven't heard that will open their eyes and get them to thinking as well. So that was sort of the basis of it. And every day there's another new example that I could put in the book. So I'm trying to be careful about what I use, how I'm trying to make it succinct and clear so that people who aren't super well-informed can come along this journey and understand where we are today and what they can do about it. But there's also plenty of stuff in there for people who already start from a place where they understand the system as it is. And I think there's so much benefit to both audiences. You're talking about the already well-informed or the ones who are just now peeking in behind this curtain, because I think that there's a great appreciation for effective communication changes the world, right? If we can tell stories in a way that they can be heard and understood and um, entered into, then that's how we help our fellow man. That's how we help the neighbors and the school um, teachers and things of that nature. So regardless of whether we know the stories, I look forward to reading how you have told them in that succinct way and what your experience is. So that's, that's great news. And we as a team are kind of stepping into some uncharted territory with that also because our group of advocates grew by 60% through COVID. And so many of the people who are now joining this conversation have never looked at the stories behind the measles shot or the stories behind the pertussis shot or DTAP. They only have looked at the COVID shot. So we're working on releasing the shot stories so that people can understand the entire childhood schedule and not just what's being added to it lifetime. Well, I'll give you just one little taste that I'll bet a lot of your audience hasn't heard about it, if you want me to. Do we have yes, time? That'd be great. I think one of the most eye-opening things that happened to me, and this will be discussed in some detail in the book, is I was looking at new labels some years ago that were being put on antiperspirants that warned of kidney damage. And I was shocked. You know, my daughter was getting to the age where she would start using antiperspirants or whatnot. So I thought maybe this is a story that will concern a lot of parents and moms. And I contacted the FDA, found someone's home number, the guy who is in charge of over-the-counter cosmetics, as they call them. And he discussed this kidney issue with me, but then, which was interesting in of itself. And then he said, oh, I thought you were calling me about the breast cancer thing. And I said, what? He said, oh, I thought you were calling me about the breast cancer thing. I said, what's the breast cancer thing? And it turns out that for years, Studies have showed that antiperspirants are linked to breast cancer and it explains why. And the FDA, there were those who thought a warning should be on the labels. I think so too, even if it's not 100% conclusive, I think we have a right to know there are suggestive studies so that people can mitigate their own risk if they choose. And he said, while we're fighting 
year to year, the cosmetics industry fights to keep that label off. So it's a battle every year. And I said, well, why don't you just put it on, on out of an abundance of caution? Is, shouldn't you be erring on the side of informing the public? And he said, well, they can tie us up in court if we don't have what they consider conclusive causal studies and so on. They can just tie this up in court and cost a lot of money. So I ended up doing a story on that, big story, um, super informative, found a doctor, you know, studies and a doctor to interview about them. And then um, one little twist, I go to the cosmetics industry and they refer me to the American Cancer Society for an interview. They said, the American Cancer Society will go on camera and tell you this is just a myth. Well, I knew by now it wasn't a myth. Maybe it's in the subject of some debate, but certainly there were peer-reviewed published studies that suggested the link. I call the American Cancer Society and the lead doctor there says, oh, this is a myth. It's a myth. Yes, I'll do an interview. And I said, well, what about study A, B, and C? He didn't know about the studies. And I'm thinking, okay, the American Cancer Society is debunking something that hasn't been debunked and is uninformed on the latest science. How, why is that? Come to find out, as you probably know, the American Cancer Society is funded in part by the cosmetics industry, which they did not want me to report or ask about during the interview. And I, that was opening the door to how so many nonprofits that claim to do one thing are taking money from those industries that they're claiming to sort of oversee or watch for. And long story short, I did that, I think it was one of my most fascinating stories in terms of the content for CBS. And then somebody at the top, first of all, people tried to stop the story within the network, not everybody, but certain forces before it aired. I couldn't understand why at the time. And then they tried to stop part two because it was a two-part report. So it was quite a battle. But I think the takeaway being that they, there are people inside the FDA that knew antiperspirants are linked to breast cancer. And this guy told me himself, he wouldn't let anybody in his family use antiperspirants. He would use deodorants. And I'm thinking, doesn't the public have the right to know that information, even if it is like much science evolving or changing as we add more information, why don't we have the right to know what bureaucrats know and what the industry knows, but is keeping secret from us? So, Wow. That is big. And relating the cosmetics industry to the American Cancer Society, people don't know that they could should care about what is in their cosmetics, what goes on their skin. So journalism used to be a pillar of freedom. And I say used to, maybe I shouldn't, maybe it still is a pillar of freedom, but it feels today that it's become more of a tool of tyrants. So how do we turn this around? I think the, the model is shifting and I don't know how it ends, but people are looking for the answer to your question because we now know we can't turn to the traditional formerly trusted sources like the networks in the New York Times to get full and accurate reporting on things of importance. In fact, the things that are in the headlines on a daily basis, which tend to be almost the same from publication to publication, we are missing so much of what's really important to people and what's really impacting them because we're I've written about that too, how journalists get their story ideas and what they choose to report. We shouldn't all be marching to the same tune. That wouldn't happen organic. That wouldn't happen organically. We would have different ideas of what makes news. We'd all be covering somewhat different stories. Maybe the top few would be the same, but then we'd be off on all different topics because there are thousands of stories you could choose from on a given day. But when they're so homogenized, there's a reason behind that. And I think you know, it's been recognized that we're not getting a good dose of news now from our traditional, once traditional sources. So Substack, for example, is an outgrowth of that. 
I don't think it's the total answer. Neither is Twitter, but it is a partial answer. You see Tucker, you see with the advent of Elon Musk taking over Twitter or X, that Tucker Carlson has found an outlet there that's probably supposedly bigger than his audience was at Fox. So the model's changing and what people are really hunting for are platforms where they can't be canceled, where there are forms of payment for having the website can't be controlled by the establishment big tech industry, which is controlled by government slash pharma, whatever you want to say. So everybody's searching for independent technological ways to bring information to people and easy formats that people can access, but that can't be controlled. I don't know how it ends, but I think we'll continue to see a blossoming of these uh, trials for different kinds of um, news sources. Yes. What would you say makes you fearless? I can sense that, you know, you just have not stopped since you noticed the opposition and have kept bringing these stories to the public. So what is it that makes you fearless? Well, I enjoy, I guess, going against the grain. If, if a truth is to be told or facts are to be exposed and someone is trying to not, not expose them, I think that's a fascinating intellectual challenge, a great journalism challenge. I think it's important. It becomes, you know, makes my job feel like it means a lot that you can not just report the same thing everybody else is reporting, but report something true that's different. Um, I just think that's personally very rewarding from a professional viewpoint. I'm also stubborn. When I learn something with an open mind that's contrary to what I may have thought, but is factually backed, or when I hear a viewpoint I may not even agree with, but that deserves to be heard by people for them to have a fulsome picture of what's going on, it becomes important to me to follow that and to get that viewpoint out. And maybe it's um, against stubbornness, but I enjoy the act of going against the grain when warranted to bring factual information to people that others are trying to hide. Well, tell us how people can support your work as you do just that and how we can get a copy of Follow the Science. Well, you can pre-order Follow the Science. You can go to HarperCollins if you don't want to order from Amazon. You can go to HarperCollins.com and find Follow the Science or my name. Pre-order any from anywhere on there or pretty much anywhere you can order from Amazon. And I'm also offering signed and personalized books. If you go to CherylAckison.com and click the store tab for no charge, I will sign them and even personalize them for you for no extra charge. And all proceeds of what I raise on the website and for the books and all that go to independent reporting causes. I fund cash awards called the Ion Awards at two journalism colleges and also professional awards to try to encourage this kind of reporting and others because it's not rewarded by the big groups. Yes, I've received many numerous Emmy nominations and Emmy awards, but those awards are not set up today the way they're structured and who's running them to award this great independent off-narrative journalism that doesn't say the same thing they want you to say. So these cash awards will try to encourage that kind of reporting. Um, I report project, I support Project Censored. I support the Breckner's, Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida that works on FOIA causes. So um, any funds that are raised through this go to important things that I hope will change, even if just a little bit, the landscape of journalism in a positive way. Um, most of what I report, I cross post at CherylAckison.com. So while you can watch fullmeasure.news online anytime, my TV show, you can mostly see everything else or on TV. 
You can mostly see everything cross-posted at CherylAckeson.com. For your people, I have a great health tab at CherylAckeson.com. And under the health tab are resources and links to my medical and vaccine stories, my long COVID and long vax resources and stories, and other resources that I don't think you'll find anywhere else. So that might be a special interest. And I think you were the first reporter I heard use the term long vax. And I thought that was really bold because there people are not making the distinction in the news between those who have long COVID symptoms post disease and post vaccination. So thank you so much for all that you do to bring facts to the public. We appreciate you and look forward to reading your book. So thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Introducing Whipped Seafoam Body Butter by Sirene Cosmetics. Hi, I'm Star, owner of the Lemonade Mermaid. Enriched with the nourishing powers of cocoa butter, mango butter, and shea butter, our body butter whisks you away to a world of deep hydration. Experience the essence of the sea with every application as this whipped delight leaves your skin refreshed, replenished, and ready to conquer the day. Visit thelemonademermaid.com and make your skin sing with the magic of the sea. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that if you did, you'll leave us a great review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours. And now you can support independent journalism causes by visiting CherylAckeson.com and clicking on the store tab. There are some thought-provoking and fun products designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers like you, such as products with the slogan, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All my old ones came true. Proceeds benefit independent reporting causes. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.